Reading, as Adrian said, is from St. Matthew's Gospel. It's chapter 11, and it's on page 976 of the Pew Bible. Chapter 11, and I'm reading from verse 20 to 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may your word only be spoken, your word only be heard, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. How blessed are those who know their need of God. Uh, We find that in Matthew's Beatitudes, and they seem to apply here. How blessed are those who know their need of God. I rediscovered faith or I was encountered afresh by Jesus uh, when I was 24. Um, I had a Christian upbringing, but at 15 I declared myself an atheist and that lasted for about six months um, because my lovely vicar said, well, good luck to you, matey. Um, If you can prove that God doesn't exist, uh, good on you. But um, I settled to be agnostic uh, and an honest agnostic and At 24, I was in Italy touring with a mate of mine, Steve. We'd been off every year since I left school. We got a VW Beetle and a tent. We went to Morocco, Russia, Greece. And that year, we were in Italy. And our usual trick of going into a campsite and just sort of cruising around the lanes, seeing uh, what the talent might be like up and down the lanes. (laughs) And we saw these two girls by a ridge tent, And uh, it was a shame. There was nowhere else we could park. There was no other space. So we put our tent up with the guy ropes virtually touching theirs. And I'm making this quick because I could embellish it dreadfully. Um, 
but uh, we invited, they were two American girls um, from Boston Hospital who were trekking across Europe uh, with backpacks going to Israel to make pilgrimage. And um, we went, we gave them a lift down into Florence and sitting there, and there I was at 24, and I said, they declared themselves Christians. And Steve and I looked at each other as if to say, well, let's get out now. <laughs> um, but Judy was a psychologist at Boston Hospital, and she was a bright cookie, but she was also drop-dead gorgeous. She was half Apache American. That makes a very nice combination. And... Um, uh, I said, you know, well, I'm quite prepared to believe there is a God, but why doesn't he just make himself more obvious? I mean, you know, here I am at the beginning of my life, you know, why doesn't he? And I don't know quite how to put it, but she turned to me with the most loving look in her eyes, and she said, well, of course, you're just too arrogant to receive Jesus into your life. You're just too arrogant to receive Jesus into your life. We had to move on, Steve and I, and we left them in Florence, and about the fourth night that we were in Rome, which has about six big campsites all around, we were sitting there, and Judy and Lynn walked up our lane. They hadn't the first clue which campsite we were going to. Thousands of people, thousands of tents and caravans, and I thought, hello, I'm being persecuted here. <laughs> and we spent time with them in Rome. Then we actually did agree to meet up with them in Naples. And it was at that point that I didn't have a conversion experience as such. I was deeply moved. I promised to pray. That's all I promised. I promised to pray. Well, you know what happens then. You're playing with fire. And the Lord broke down. It's taken, still taking well, I'm 65 now, so that's 40 years of breaking down this arrogance that had stopped me receiving Jesus into my life. Why is that so applicable now? In that beatitude at Matthew 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Matthew says explicitly, poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have a lack of arrogance and ego those who have a sense of need. So I've always liked the translation of that beatitude as how blessed are those who know their need of God. Well, what do we get to today in chapter 11? We've got, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Jesus says, woe to you, Capernaum, Jesus' own adopted city for his ministry. Why are they cursed and compared with the dreadful cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom? Woe also means, apparently, alas, pity on you, alas. So we've got, in our reading, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum, you'll be lifted up. To, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You'll go down to the depths, to Hades. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Oh. We know very little about Chorazin and Bethsaida, but as Galilean towns, it's likely they encountered Jesus and it says as much. He did miracles there. They were impressed. 
Capernaum certainly did see a lot, and it's mentioned often. But to put them in the same breath as Tyre, Sidon and Sodom must have been felt by the crowds as unnecessarily extreme. As Jews, they'd have been aware of the denunciations of Tyre and Sidon in their scriptures. We see that in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Denounced for their wickedness. But Sodom and Gomorrah were just bywords for sheer iniquity and debauchery. And poor Capernaum gets the short straw and is compared with Sodom. The great sin of these Galilean cities is of indifference to the message of Jesus. His call to repentance, they took no note, and they didn't listen to his announcement of the kingdom of God. These had gone unheeded by the people of these places. They didn't recognize their need of God. They had the privilege of observing his miracles and loving acts, and they'd remained unmoved. Business as usual. Commentators suggest that this is not just confined to Jesus' time, but that Matthew and Luke's sources for this saying, which you may now be familiar with the Q source, the the source of um, story and sayings that is common to Luke and Matthew, the Q source, This reflects how things may have been for the first missionaries of the church between, say, 35 and 70 AD, before these two Gospels were written. Seed falling on stony ground. Woe to you, John Reed. You were too arrogant to allow Christ into your life. Woe to you, Taunton. Woe to you, England. Woe to you, Europe. These are hard days for the gospel in the wealthy Western world. Very many people confess to feeling poor in spirit, but God is not seen to be relevant or the solution. Maybe in our affluent consumerist society, people are not so much unmoved or indifferent, but do not see their need of God. Maybe that's the failing of the church, that we're just not getting it through. I don't know. We can beat ourselves up dreadfully about this. But there is great fervor and passion in the mission of the church. Always has been. But nowadays, if you have just a little money, you can buy yourself out of any sense of lack of fulfillment for a moment. Um, You can put away your insecurity and fear and anxiety for the moment with a drink, a movie on TV, a smoke, especially if it's got something nice in it, a shopping spree, a bet, sex, a pill, you name it. Our society has endless ways to deal with feeling poor in spirit. We can get out of it for a moment. But why is the gospel of Jesus Christ not inspiring or catching the imagination of people in this part of the world? Because it certainly is across the third world. The Christian faith still spreads fantastically across the world. Well, we may be hardened. Um, So much that we've got hardness of heart in Europe. People think they've heard the story. They think they know the Christian faith. 
But as somebody said, it's like a box of slides or um, a whole lot of mosaics that got dropped on the floor. So they come along to church at Christmas and they look at the slide and they say, oh, isn't that pretty? That's lovely. Oh, yes, that's nice. They might bump into the church at a funeral or uh, Easter time. And again, they'll be presented with something and they'll say, oh, yes, that's very nice. Thank you. I'll put that. Yeah. But they don't see the whole picture because it just doesn't connect up. They've just seen a tiny part. We've lost the whole canvas. And yet they think they know it. But we may be heartened to realise that this is no new thing. You recall the previous chapter of Matthew, how Jesus sent out his disciples to tell people about the kingdom of God. And he was not unrealistic about the reception they might receive. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, he warned them. In in their day, in the early church, they would be in danger, real danger of physical persecution when Matthew was writing. Luke's parallel passage in these verses is set in the middle of the sending out of the 72, the places where Jesus was about to go. We're not told where they went, but they came back with joy and talked of great things that had been done in Jesus' name. Maybe those 72 went to the poorest and the most needy people of the area, those whose lives were not only materially poor, but also spiritually stifled by the religious and political forces of the day, people who knew their need of God. Well, secondly, we move on to the next verses, 25, and we may see a clue here. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It's very strange stuff, this. Again, Jesus' Beatitudes resonate. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted. They are the good soil, the people described in the Beatitudes. But the wise and learned people of his day were described as unpromising ground for the seed of the gospel to germinate, to take root, to grow, to blossom and fruit. We can imagine how the parable of the sower fits to some degree if we conclude that modern rich societies of the West are like the stony ground or the path, or most particularly like the soil where thorns grew up and choked the young plants. As Jesus explained, they are the people who are choked by this life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they don't mature. We recall Jesus' famous saying in Matthew 18.3, that unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. His call is to become childlike, knowing our need, with no arrogance or ego to get in the way. And we must constantly remind ourselves in the church, it does not mean childish. One of the joys of an archdeacon going round our many, many parishes is I see the childish behaviour of people who get caught up 
in the politics, the internal struggles of church councils reordering which service you have when you have it. Oh, my life. We are called to be childlike, not childish. But none of this explains why Jesus should be quoted as saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Hidden? When all the evidence is that Jesus came for all people, including Nicodemus, the rich man, the the, the centurion, Matthew, the tax collector, the wealthy people who invited him to dinner, St. Paul a very wise and learned person, and probably not badly off at his conversion. Why then should Jesus say that his father would intentionally hide the gospel from the wise and the intelligent? And Adrian will give the answer this evening. Because <laughs> I don't know. But perhaps in Matthew's day of writing, some 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees are still very much regarded as the stony ground, the wise and intelligent leaders of religion, whom Jesus verbally accused of pride, arrogance, and hypocrisy. Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish in flavour and most likely written by a Jew for Jews. But why God the Father should be seen to hide the Gospel from e even from them the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, remains a mystery. The gospel is, however, welcomed and takes root in Matthew's Christian community of the little people. The little people, the, the infants. And I must move on faster. Thirdly, verse 27. All things have been committed to be by my father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here we have what is called Jesus' Christological declaration. Um, far more obvious, perhaps, and far more uh, uh, set out in John's Gospel, the divine nature of Jesus, but here it is from Jesus. Jesus receives his knowledge from his Father, whereas the scribes and Pharisees and rabbis base their tradition on the human level, man-made religion, man-made religion. All that comes from Je to Jesus is by his divine and direct relationship with God the Father. It is all God's initiative. And fourthly, those last verses... Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. These verses will only be found in Matthew's Gospel, unique to Matthew. And again, we've got to remember that Matthew's Gospel is written for Jewish readers who were probably under real persecution. The burden of religious obligation imposed by scribes and Pharisees was a barrier to communion with God. A yoke, a yoke was a common metaphor for servitude and obedience. And the scribes and Pharisees would use the yoke of the Torah, the law, to which had been added some 4,000 religious bylaws and customs and obligations they imposed on people 
to weigh down the people of the Jewish race and religion. Jesus speaks of taking his yoke upon you. Not just swapping one yoke for another, surely. He said, I'll give you rest. I will refresh you. So the yoke he describes is a synonym, a synonym for salvation. Being made whole. At one. At one moment. That glorious word atonement. Literally, it's only an English word. It's lovely. It doesn't come from anywhere else. At one moment. Atonement. At one with God. Salvation. Jesus lifts the yoke of oppression and servitude to man-made religion, the yoke of guilt, unworthiness and fear, to replace it with his yoke of discipleship. And here we have that paradox. It is a real paradox, which St. Augustine sort of brings out so beautifully in a prayer that you'll be familiar with. When he said, Almighty God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Grant us purity of heart and strength of purpose, that no selfish passion may hinder us from knowing your will, no weakness from doing it, but that in your light we may see light clearly and in your service find our perfect freedom. You've heard that many times. In your service find our perfect freedom. It seems a contradiction. Servitude, freedom. It depends how you see this servanthood. But we haven't finished. Verse 29 and 30. How can Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Surely, in very many other sayings to his disciples, he tells them of the demands, challenges, sacrifices and risks of following him. Are there two levels of following Jesus? One for the twelve disciples, another for normal people. The crowds whom he address is addressing at this point. No, this doesn't tally with his call to discipleship when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The yoke of the cross of Jesus Christ is dying to self to rise with him. It doesn't sound easy or light to me. So what's Jesus saying? It doesn't sound easy or light, and it isn't, except except for this one thing. It isn't easy or light when we try to do it alone or in our own strength. When will I learn Truth. When will I learn? When we daily ask in our prayers for God to guide, protect, and bless, e- bless us each day, we are not on our own trying to be a Christian and to be good at it. We're not on our own. With the risen Christ bearing the load, with the Holy Spirit working in and through us, with the love of the Father enfolding us, the whole enterprise is very different. It is a different kind of yoke. We have the grace, love and fellowship of God the Holy Trinity that combine to make that servanthood a perfect freedom. Grace, love, fellowship. Like love itself, we may not be able to explain it, but we know it when we see it and when we feel it.
So, thank you. How blessed are those who know their need of God, not just to come to faith, but in the daily living out of faith.